1 Samuel 26, let's begin reading in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had came, came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay round him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we uh, prepare ourselves for uh, a time away from school, perhaps a couple of days off of work, a day of thanksgiving. We want to pause at the beginning of this week and remember that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you, the Father of lights who doesn't change and whose mercies are everlasting and unstopping. Thank you, Father. Lord, we're also mindful of the fact that for many in this room and perhaps listening online, that this week is a a time of mixed feelings uh, because we spend time around family who uh, has hurt us or because we spend time uh, together around family and someone who was there last year isn't there this year. And uh, there are a whole host of other things that, that people are dealing with this week, Father, and even though they are nothing in comparison with your greatness and goodness, we know that your compassion is toward your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would give grace even this morning, that you would give joy to your children, that you would comfort and feed your sheep today through your word. 
Lord, we pray as well for our brothers and sisters ministering around the world. And we pray in particular for the W family as uh, they are ministering at another church today. Uh, we ask that you would give Mr. W uh, grace, that you would anoint him with your spirit to preach the word faithfully and to, uh, to see fruit uh, come from, from the preaching of your word. Uh, Father, we want to hear from you today. We ask that you would show us yourself uh, through, the, through this passage, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Adoniram Judson was just a couple of years younger than I am when an officer in the Burmese government came to take him away on June 8, 1824. Judson, of course, was one of the first to leave North America as a foreign missionary. He and his wife, Anne, traveled to Burma, where he was preaching the gospel and had intended to plant a church. He was already accustomed to difficulty, but nothing like what he was about to endure. War had been brewing between the British colonial government and the kingdom of Burma, and when it finally broke out, Judson and some of his colleagues were arrested and imprisoned as spies. They were first incarcerated in a place Judson called the Death Prison, where they spent 11 months. From there, they were marched about 10 miles to a different prison. They spent six months in that prison, and then he became a prisoner at large for several months because of his skills as a translator. And finally, he was released to his family after 21 total months of horror. Now, if that doesn't seem like a long time to you, consider the fact that when Judson first passed beyond the bamboo door of that chamber in the death prison, lined with heavy wooden stocks, filled with vermin, blanketed in the odor of death and disease, he had no idea how long he would spend there and whether he would leave alive. In fact, every day at 3 p.m., the dozens of prisoners shuffling around in their heavy iron chains would grow quiet as they waited for the sound of the gong and the arrival of the guards who on any given day would enter without explanation and lead away two or three wretches to the gallows. Every single day, for weeks, months, not knowing when it would end. No news from the outside, no sign of comfort, no sense of whether today might be the day he or his friends might be singled out for torture or execution. See, Judson's experience in the death prison is an extreme example, more extreme perhaps than you or I might experience in our life, I don't, I don't know. But it is an extreme example of the kinds of suffering we may be called upon to face as followers of Christ. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that there are two realities that make it almost unbearable. You've got the suffering itself, the reality that you're going through difficulty, that you're experiencing injustice, and the fact that in addition to the, to the suffering, you don't know when it's going to end. You're experiencing an injustice, evil's overwhelming you, and you don't know what's next. What do you do in that situation? Judson, at first, was pretty powerless to change his circumstances. Later on, he would gain more uh, power. But look at David in the passage we just read. He suffered injustice at the hands of Saul. He doesn't know when it's going to stop. 
He doesn't see any way out. What is he going to do? It's wrong what David is facing. He doesn't seem to be letting up. In fact, he's already been in a nearly identical circumstance. You remember from a few weeks ago that David was in a cave and Saul came into the cave and David had the chance to end his life right then and there and he chose to spare him. Now Saul is back. By the way, Saul promised to leave him alone and he has already broken that promise. Saul's back with his 3,000 troops chasing David in the wilderness. What is David going to do? What do you do when you're suffering injustice and you don't know when it's going to end? You don't see a clear way out and you don't know what's next. All of us are going to face some version of this. It may not be as extreme as Judson's experience in the prison. It may not be as intense as David's desert chase. But all Christians, all followers of Christ, are going to suffer evil and injustice, and we're going to go through times when we don't know what's going to happen next. So this morning, what I want to do is, from this passage, observe some of the ways that you may be tempted to respond in this circumstance. In fact, there are three ways that I see from this passage that we're tempted to respond, and then there are four ways that we should do, four things we should do instead. So first of all, uh, what are we tempted to do? I'm suffering an injustice. There doesn't seem to be any end in sight. What do I do? What am I tempted to do? Here's what you may be tempted to do. First of all, you may be tempted to return evil for evil. You may be tempted to return evil evil. Have you found that to be the case? For the second time, the Ziphites report back to Saul that David is hiding in the rocks and strongholds of their ancestral wilderness home. Once again, Saul responds by leading this massive company of troops after him into the wilderness. But David, already a capable warrior, has deployed an intelligence unit from among the 600 men that have been following him around. And he learns through this network of spies that Saul is right nearby. And so here he is. He's camping lazily in a valley nearby, and he's completely exposed to attack. And there must have been at least a twinge of vengefulness in David's heart when he goes to his friends, Ahimelech and his nephew, Abishai, and he says, hey, you guys want to go over there? I mean, that's basically what Abishai assumes. He assumes David's asking me to go over to see Saul's camp because we are about to, if we have the chance, kill Saul. Saul had committed incalculable evil against David for years, and to top it off, the last time they had spoken, Saul had promised to leave him alone, and now he had broken the promise. So it would have been completely normal for David to think in terms of retaliation. Saul comes after me, I'm going to go after him. I mean, can you sympathize with David and Abishai here? Isn't this the very first thing we're tempted to do? We're suffering an injustice. We don't see a way out. We don't know how long we're going to have to put up with it. We don't know how bad it's going to get, so what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to return evil for evil. Like how two years ago you started a new job and your, your boss was just horrible to have to work with. A mean, manipulative person who played favorites and made your life miserable, but you've bided your time, and you've waited, and you've been patient, and now you're in a position where you can do something and make his life miserable. 
Or like how for years growing up, living with your mom was just constant terror and drama and broken promises, even abuse. And now fast forward to today, and you've overcome a lot of those things, and you've made something of yourself, but she wants to be involved in your life, and you, there's something in the back of your mind and in your heart where you're saying, you know what, I want her to know that I have not forgotten. When we deal with injustice... The first temptation is to return evil for evil. But surprisingly, David doesn't do that. And we'll talk about why in a, in a moment. But that's our first temptation. Notice, secondly, you're going to be tempted to rationalize selfish choices. You're going to be tempted to rationalize selfish choices. Look at verse 7. David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. I mean, just imagine being David, and you look down into the valley, and you see there's Saul lying there, and you look at his, nearby his head, and there's that spear, a spear he had seen many times before. This is the same spear that got thrown at him twice when he used to work for Saul in Gibeah, he sees that spear, and with a logic that for at least a moment must have made total sense, Abishai begins to whisper. Uh, now, Abishai, by the way, is David's nephew. Uh, he is the son of David's sister, and he, along with his brothers Joab and, and Azahel, uh, if you follow their story in Scripture, you kind of come away with this impression that Abishai and his brothers are like these like bruiser-type guys. They really love to adventure, and they're, they're probably, growing up, they're probably in the uh, emergency room at Bethlehem General Hospital all the time. They're always up for an adventure, and so you can just see Abishai, wild-eyed, whispering intently to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, like this is your chance. I think God is behind this. What's Abishai doing? He's providing a rationale for David to make a selfish choice. That's the temptation, isn't it? To rationalize selfish choices. Killing Saul would have been bad for everybody. Plenty of innocent people would have died. There would have been this long, protracted civil war. It might have been good for David in the short term, but it definitely would not have benefited everybody else. But the temptation was to rationalize a selfish choice because the suffering and the injustice was just so great and there didn't seem to be an expiration date. And, 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 and so Abishai comes and he says, come on, David, this is from the Lord. Makes sense, doesn't it? And you know this all too well. You've been there many times. You know, like I committed to serving this ministry for an entire 12 months, but I didn't know at the time that I was going to have to work with that person, and they're so difficult, and I think the Lord is telling me that I need to move on and go do something else. When you know good and well, the Lord didn't say any such thing. Jake, I just can't take it anymore. I've been putting my husband first and my kids first and my mother first and my father first and my work first and my siblings first, but I think it's about time I start putting me first. The mind is a powerful thing, isn't it? We have the power to create this massive cognitive dissonance between what we know is true and right and what we imagine is permissible because we want it to be. And when we're suffering injustice and it seems like there's no way out, there's one of, that's one of the ways we're tempted to respond. Some of you have been doing that for so long and with such skill that you don't even know you're doing it anymore. 
But there's a third temptation David avoids in this passage as well. When we're suffering an injustice, we don't know what's next. We're tempted first to return evil for evil, second to rationalize a selfish choice, and then thirdly, we're tempted to rely on man's empty promises. Let me explain what I mean by that. David waves off this temptation, thankfully, to kill Saul. He says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do what's right. And uh, so he takes the symbol of Saul's power, this spear, and he absconds with it. He runs up the hill to a safe distance, and then he calls out to the army, and he says, hey, Abner, why aren't you watching your king? You know, what's wrong with you? And he kind of calls out the whole army, and he says, you guys actually deserve to die. Because you should be watching, you should be protecting the Lord's anointed. And, and then he starts to have this conversation with Saul, and Saul promises. He says, David, you know what? You're right. I've been wrong, and, and I'm going to leave you alone now. And, and you're going to go on, and you're going to do great things. And, and here's what David doesn't do. He doesn't take that seriously at all. <laughs> he just almost basically ignores everything that Saul promises to do. So what is Saul asking David to do? He's asking him to trust him. He's asking him to rely on Saul's words. And if I can just zoom out a little bit, this is a temptation for us. Whenever we suffer injustice and we don't see a way out, what do we do? Instead of looking to God, we look for a human solution to the problem, right? We find somebody that we feel like we can trust instead of trusting in the promises of God. And I wonder if that's starting to sound familiar to you. Isn't this exactly what we do when it comes to the political injustices of our nation? Don't we look for the solutions of men instead of relying on the solutions that God gives? We just went through an election cycle, and now that the midterms are over and all the news stations and the media outlets, they've turned their attention to the presidential election scheduled two years from now. There's a lot that we could say about these things. Amazingly, professing Christians, and, and I say amazingly, it shouldn't, it's really not. We've come to expect this sort of thing. It's so easy to be cynical, isn't it? But professing Christians... In the face of all of our injustices in the world, we've placed, perhaps, our confidence in the words and works of men, even to the point where I've heard people using biblical language that should be about Jesus Christ alone in talking about some politician out there. And if it weren't so silly, it would be really sad. I'm not saying we can't engage in political life. I'm simply saying that when you face injustice, you're going to be tempted to rely instead of on God in, in the promises of man. And when you do that, when you place your confidence in man's hands, those men, those women are going to utterly fail you. You know, if there's one thing that's common to everybody's experience in the world, it is that all of us sooner or later are going to suffer injustice. We're going to suffer the evils of this world. If you haven't been through that already, then it's coming this is part of the human experience. You will face these things. And it seems to me that we church people in our modern churches in the United States of America, we've perhaps done a bad job of preparing ourselves for this reality. Like we come into church and uh, we say, hey, everything's great. You know, I've got my nice clothes on, you know, my nerdy sweater vest, and um, I've got a smile on my face. And we get up and we say, isn't the weather, it's so cold, but it'll be warm again, and it's, it's great, aren't you great? Everybody's great. 
There's a lot of pressure on churches to make people feel like things are going great. And I don't want you to feel bad. But there's this pressure, and so when we face real problems, real injustice, we're left totally unprepared to face them. And so what do we do? We, we haven't prepared ourselves. We haven't gone to God's word to find God's solutions to these things. And so immediately when it happens, we default to these temptations. We return evil for evil. We begin to rationalize our selfish choices and put a spiritual veneer over the things that we want to do. And then we rely on the promises of men instead of trusting in the promises of God. Well, what should we do instead? There are four things David does that you can do too. Here's number one. First of all, resolve to do what's right. Resolve to do what's right. Notice David's clear moral reasoning to Abishai in verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In other words, David has trained himself to take moral responsibility for the choices that he is making. He remembers that there is a judge and that he is going to be held accountable for every choice he makes. So friends, in a world of twisted morality, where all too often might makes right, here is a man, here is King David, the anointed king, who resolves to do right no matter what, because it is right. He recognizes that even though Saul deserves to die, even though he is an evil man who has murdered hundreds, even though he is a threat to David's safety and to David's family and to David's men, he is still the Lord's anointed king, and with stunning clarity, he concludes that to touch the anointed of the Lord would be to place himself above the God of the universe, and therefore he says, I am not willing to do that. I have resolved in my heart. I am going to do what's right, no matter what. We're going to face injustice, friends. We're going to face evil, and from time to time we'll be presented with what seems like a simple solution, but if it requires us to sin, if it requires us to disobey our king, then, folks, it's out of bounds. You must decide in your heart that you will not think twice about it, that you are just going to say, no, I'm going to do what is right, what I know that Jesus has said to do. Resolve in your heart that no matter what your spouse does, no matter what your teacher does, no matter what your brother does, no matter what your boss does, no matter what the politicians do, you will do what is right, period. It is not going to be easy. It's not going to be popular. It's not going to be convenient. It may be very, very difficult to do. But you have to resolve because it is your duty as a subject of the king of the universe. I'm going to do what is right no matter what. Why? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that day is coming far sooner than it probably seems. As David asks, who can sin in this way and be guiltless? I wonder today if you find yourself in a situation where you're faced with injustice or evil, and you see in front of you some choices, and some of those choices are very simple. Some business decision, a, a, a relational decision, a, a financial decision. And you think, man, that would really solve the problem. But in the back of your mind, you know, it would require you to walk in disobedience. You know, sometimes it's hard to understand what is right. But a lot of times we act, don't we, as though it is difficult to determine what is right. 
when in, rea- when in reality the difficulty is not determining what is right, it's determining whether we are going to do what we actually know is right. David resolved to do what was right. Let's do the same. Secondly, rehearse what's true. Rehearse what's true. Uh, look what David does. Verse 10. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. Later on in verse 23, he reminds Saul and everybody else standing there, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. What is he doing? He's reminding himself, and he's rehearsing in front of everybody else, I know what is true, and though it seems like it's not true because of the circumstances that we're facing, I know that God is in control and that he's going to do what he wants to do and that he's already laid out a plan, he's already made some promises, and I'm going to remind myself of what I know to be true about God. And so how do we combat? This is one of the sinister things about trials and suffering and and injustice. What do they do? We, We go through this evil in our life. We face evil. And what does it do? It, it causes us to feel like, like the world is upside down, doesn't it? Like it causes us to question the faithfulness of God. Maybe God doesn't love me as much as he loves that other person. And so what David, how do we combat this? We need to be like the disoriented pilot who feels like down is up and up is down and has to look at the instruments in front of her and trust the instruments Because even though I might feel like I'm going down, I look at my instruments and I realize, okay, I've got to do this and now I'm going to be going straight again. Even though it may not feel that way, I've got to go off of what I know is true. Folks, we have to trust our instruments. We have to rehearse what is true. David, of course, had a fresh example. Look where he's just been. Remember from a few weeks ago how he and his men were starving and he goes to this rich uh, landowner Nabal, he says, can you provide some food? And Nabal says, no. And uh, David is, is just, he loses his temper, and he's about to go kill Nabal and all the people that work for him. And uh, God sends Abigail to stop him and, and keep him from sinning, and then the Lord strikes Nabal down himself. That's fresh in David's mind. He says, you know what? Even though it seems like in this circumstance God is not in control, I remember how he worked in that other circumstance. I don't have to know what's next because I remember that the Lord will take care of it. And so when Saul shows up with his 3,000 troops, David rehearses what's true. Remember that the Lord is going to be the one to take care of this. By the way, whenever we face injustice and suffering, our brain is already wired to rehearse things. We already cycle through things. The problem is we don't always cycle through the truth, do we? When we lie awake at night, when we're driving to work, and our brain is just on autopilot, what are we doing? We're rehearsing every way that that person has sinned against us. We're rehearsing all the things that could go wrong. Our brain is rehearsing things. And all I'm, trying, all I'm saying is this, folks. We've got to take the script we've been reading, the script we've been rehearsing, and throw it away and pick up a different script and say, I'm going to rehearse what's 
true. God is sovereign over every detail of my life. God's mercies are new every morning. They never run out. If I'm still breathing, I'm still receiving the kindness of God. Jesus has been tempted and tried in every way that I'm being tempted and tried. Jesus is praying for me today. I've been bought with the price and I'm not my own. I'm one of his sheep and the good shepherd never lets go of his sheep. Uh, Jesus invites me to come to him and find rest. Trials are precious because they strengthen my faith. Jesus really is alive. The Spirit of God is within me. Jesus sent him to me, and I know that God is with me. I mean, rehearse what's true. We could keep going, but the point is that if you're going to face injustice, even if you don't know what's next, this is what you're going to need to do. Resolve to do what's right. Rehearse what's true. Thirdly, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Here's what I mean. Notice in this passage how many times David navigates back and forth between speaking to Saul and then praying to I am. He says, if the Lord has directed you to pursue me, then may he accept an offering. If men are behind this, then may the Lord curse them. What is he doing? He's talking to Saul, but really he's praying to God. May the Lord do this. As your, let, let not my blood be spilled away from the presence of the Lord. As your life was precious this day in my sight, Saul, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. In other words, Saul doesn't rely on, or David doesn't rely on Saul's empty promises. He entrusts himself to the Lord. He runs to I am. But friends, we have an even greater knowledge of this God through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, and we can run to him, run to the one who has obeyed the law on our behalf, run to the one who has taken the curse of the law in his own body on the cross, run to the one who's been tempted in all the same ways that we are tempted, who's been tried in all the same ways that we've been tried, who suffered immensely on our behalf, run to him who is alive today and interceding on our behalf. Run to Christ. Listen to the exhortation of the Apostle Peter. He says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen, for, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what I'm saying, folks, is He's not asking you to do anything that he has not himself done. He, none of us can say, Jesus doesn't understand the evil that I'm enduring. He does understand. In his humanity, he's gone, he's gone through it. 
He understands exactly what he's asking you to do. You're going to have to wait on his timing and rely on his goodness, but the good news is that he's really, really trustworthy. He never fails. His love is without depth. His power is without equal. And yes, he's allowed something difficult in your life. Yes, he's allowed injustice and evil to impact your life. But folks, you might not know the reason why. That does not mean he doesn't have a good reason. He is a good Savior. He's not just kind to some people. His compassion and his kindness are for you. Run to him. Run to Christ. How do we face injustice? We must resolve to do what's right. We must rehearse what's true. We must run to Christ. And fourthly, we must remember to be thankful. We must remember to be thankful. Say, where are you getting that? Well, not from 1 Samuel 26 directly, but remember that while all these things are taking place in David's life, he's writing spirit-inspired psalms. And they survive down to this very day. And, and Psalm 54 in particular was composed when the Ziphites betrayed David to Saul, either this time or the time before. And in the same breath, in Psalm 54, in the same breath, David uses to pour out his complaint to the Lord, which is a good thing to do, folks. In the same breath, though, listen to what he says. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. What is he talking about? Give thanks. In the context of Scripture, especially in the Psalms, thanksgiving involves remembering the ways that God has answered our prayer for deliverance and acknowledging those ways publicly and saying, God, thank you so much for the things that you've done. Thank you for saving me. And what David is saying is this, God, I believe you're going to rescue me, and when you do, I'm ready to tell everybody about it. Paul echoes this sentiment in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Philippians. He says, be anxious for nothing. But how do we replace that anxiety? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. You know, it's, it's sort of a common thing to say, don't be anxious, don't be worried, pray about it. You know, pray to God. Ask God for help. But the part that we often forget is that part. With thanksgiving, isn't it? David didn't forget. He, he was suffering evil. He was facing injustice. He was in danger of being killed. And yet in the midst of that, he's able to say, God, I am going to thank you no matter what. This is what we do, by the way, when we celebrate communion, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, even in the midst of an evil world, even though evil impacts my life and tempts me and pulls me away from the things that I need to be doing, even though I'm suffering in a world that is just rife with sin, even though I've got problems, I'm going to remember that there is a table that is being set for me in the presence of my enemies, and one day it will not be a symbolic meal, it will be a real meal in the new creation. And so therefore, by faith, I'm going to give thanks for what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, for his broken body and his spilled blood for me, and I'm going to thank God. 
God as I run to Christ. This is what we're celebrating, guys. In the middle of injustice, in the face of suffering, we say, God, thank you that you have already taken care of this. So, folks, I I just wonder this morning, how many of you are saying today, Jake, that's me. I'm facing evil. There is injustice in my life. And I'm telling you, instead of being giving into the temptation to return evil for evil, to rationalize a selfish choice, to rely on the promises of men, there's four easy things, not easy things, four simple things that the Lord gives us to do. Resolve to do what's right. Run to Christ. I lost track. What was the other one? Rehearse what's true. Sorry. Remember to say thank you. Would you join me now? Let's do that together. Let's bow and pray.